Well, on July 4th, as you know, we celebrate our nation's independence. This American experiment in orderly self-government required more than a wish. It's not just a matter of fireworks and flags. It began with an understanding of what it meant to be American. Before there was a nation, there was an understanding. There was a belief that the colonies ought to govern themselves and that they were able to govern themselves better than the mother country across the sea. It began with that understanding of what it meant to be an American and the colonists needed to have a new understanding of who they were before independence from England could become a reality. In order to establish themselves as a nation outwardly, they needed to become Americans inwardly. They needed to embrace a new identity. Once that internal ontological change took hold, declaring independence became the logical and natural step. Now this was not a quick process. It didn't happen overnight after many usurpations Their hearts had turned. There was great division in in the colonies as to whether they should be independent or they should remain under the, the apron of the crown. That continued long after the War of Independence. But those those decisions had to take place in individuals. And individuals make those decisions in communities and families. At that time, in colonies. And as they did this, eventually the conclusion was clear. They needed to be independent from England. As I mentioned, once that internal change took hold, declaring independence was a logical, natural step. It took much wrestling to come conclusion because it would certainly come at a great cost. Eventually, the colonies, which had now taken on a new identity as the United States of America, won that freedom from the old regime and placed their allegiance to each other, pledged their allegiance to each other as one new nation. For this reason, we celebrate Independence Day. We celebrate to remind us of who we are, what our freedom cost, and the values and virtues that identity calls us to. But declarations and holidays and fireworks mean little if we do not live out the virtues we claim to believe. As we consider these things on this, the 4th of July, Perhaps they can help us understand today's core reality. That core reality is this. The believer's new identity in Christ involves a life of identifying with Christ. Let me say that again. The believer's new identity in Christ involves a life of identifying with Christ. Now there's a lot of... uh, 
a lot of conversation in our world today about identity, about who a person is and what that means and how that impacts their lives. The Bible is very clear about what matters most. And all of our human divisions, our human versions of what our identity might be are low-level thoughts. They're human-level thoughts. It's not that they're unimportant. We just need to keep them in perspective. Regardless of your nationality, regardless of your skin color, regardless of your economic status, Regardless of whatever situation you find yourself in, your particular tendency toward a particular sin, whatever flavor of pizza you like, whatever sports teams you root for, all of those things are small. They feel big in the moment, but they're small. And all of them must be subjected to the Lordship of Christ. So that ultimately our identity is only found in whether or not we belong to Him. Everything else is just blurry details. It is not of primary importance for you to be a patriotic American. And some of you are shocked by that. And some of you are perplexed because you know me to be a patriotic American, which I have always been and will forever be. And yet, being an American is small potatoes. First and foremost, I'm a child of God. Having been brought to life, having been changed from darkness to light, that is who I am. And everything else flows from that. It is that identity that drives how I look at the rest of life. So while I will forever be an American, how I view the values and virtues to which we aspire can only be and must always be filtered through the lens of God's Word in accordance with the guidance of His Spirit. Today is sort of an introduction to our next passage in Ephesians chapter 5. Next week we're going to take a, a deeper look at verses 8 to 14. But today, let's understand this. The believer's new identity in Christ involves a life of identifying with Christ. Now, Today is the first Sunday of the month and we set this Sunday aside specifically for the purpose of remembering and celebrating what Jesus did for us at the cross. He commanded this, he ordained this, this is why we call it an ordinance, in, in the celebration of what many called the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper or Communion. All of those terms have specific meanings within this, but they're referring to that, that ancient ceremony that Jesus instituted before He went to the cross, the night that He was arrested, when they celebrated together the Passover meal. As good Jewish boys, they, they got together and they 
went up into this borrowed apartment, this upstairs room, and they shared this meal together. And as they did that, Jesus transformed it and said, I'm going to give a new identity to this meal, which has always looked back to what God did, to our, did for our forefathers as he delivered them from bondage in Egypt and brought them into the promised land. And I'm going to tell you, now when you take this bread, as he passed it among them, this bread, which you have known to represent the affliction of the people, this bread that helps you to commemorate the exodus, this bread now, as you take it, as you eat this, as it gets all through your digestive system into every part of your body, this now represents my body, which is broken on your behalf. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup that they passed after supper, that cup that represented the blood of the Passover lamb, a lamb without blemish. So there's no flaws in this lamb representing what would come in the sinless Messiah who would die on our behalf. But that lamb was sacrificed and its blood was painted over the doorposts and the threshold of the home so that all who were inside that home were covered by that blood. So that when that tenth plague occurred and the angel of death came to take the firstborn, those who in faithful obedience were covered by the blood were saved from death. And Jesus took that cup and he passed it among them. And he said, this, now, when you drink it, don't just look back, but understand now this is a new covenant in my blood, signed in my blood. This is a new way of relating to God the Father. As we do such things in remembrance of our Lord, we are celebrating the fact that He, by His death in our place, what theologians call a substitutionary atonement, that sacrifice brought us from death, which is all of our natural state as objects of wrath, children of wrath, into life. He changed us, gave us a new identity so that in Christ, being now united to Christ, not just religious stuff where we, you know, we check a box and we sing about Christ and we gaze upon a, a, a cross, some symbol that reminds us of Him. It's not that. And it's not that we you know, somehow earn points with Him or receive salvation from Him through these elements that we take, but they are specifically given to remind us of this change in us. So today, as, as we've set this aside for that purpose, it seemed good to me, now maybe it wasn't, but it seemed good to me, that before we get into this we should examine these next steps. 
and what it means to identify with Christ and why the ordinances of baptism and the remembrance celebration are important. Why does this matter? The believer's new identity in Christ involves a life of identifying with Christ. Let me take a look at this core reality with you first. First off, this applies to believers, to those who have received Christ by faith. It is not, let me repeat this very clearly, it is not your faith that saves you. Praise God, because if it were your faith that saved you, then when you lose faith, when you struggle and doubt, your salvation would be lost. And yet Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us it's by grace that you're saved. It's God's grace that saves you. The work of Christ on the cross. It's Christ. It's Christ. Therefore, it's never been about me gripping tightly to Him. Rather, He has gripped tightly to me. It's by grace that you're saved. Through faith. That faith is how we take hold of it. That faith is how we receive the grace. In your mind, maybe you can picture a gift given to someone. That gift is paid for. It's completely yours. You did nothing to earn it. It's a gift. Not your paycheck that you get at the end of the week. You earn that. Right? The paycheck that we earn for our sin is death. Jesus took that and He gives us the gift of eternal life. But when you receive that gift, you have to actually receive it. If someone buys you that gift and they leave it on your doorstep for you and you see it and you go into your house and you leave it there on the doorstep, that gift doesn't do you much good, does it? You have to take it. You have to open it. You have to make it yours. That's what faith does. It receives and opens the gift that Jesus' blood on the cross paid for. And He rose from the dead to make sure that it was clear that the sacrifice had been accepted on our behalf. Death no longer reigned over Him. And therefore, when we are in Him, death no longer reigns over us. We may die physically, but even though we die, since He is the resurrection, we'll never die. We will live forever in, through, with, and for Him. It's that for Him part that should catch our attention. Four things I want us to see today. Let's start with the new identity. When we're talking about the new identity, this belongs to believers, right? In our core reality, the believer's new identity in Christ involves a life of identifying with Christ. We have been made new by Christ. When we take hold of Him by faith, then our identity changes from sinner to saint. It doesn't mean you are without sin. It doesn't mean that you're going to have you know, some you know, statue that gets passed around churches and things like that in your image. No, not at all. In fact, I would suggest that, that the saints who have gone before 
lament the passing around of icons, but I digress, and I could be wrong, but I don't think so. The believer's new identity is about our salvation. This salvation idea means that you need to understand who you are. You need to understand who you are. There were many probably better ways to go about saying this, so let me try to make it clear. In order to receive the gift of salvation, I need to understand who I am apart from Christ. Who I am apart from Christ is a sinner in need of a Savior. I have no hope, none, because at the end of this physical life, by God's common grace, He allows me to live until the end of my days. And when I come to the end of those days, apart from Christ, I have zero hope. Because I will have to stand before a holy judge whose standard for me is perfect compliance to His will. Perfect living out of the purpose for which I was created. And I fail in any way that you measure that. And in case you're not sure, so do you. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 2 if you would. Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 1. Paul writes, again, he's writing to the church, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. And he says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Transgressions being the specific breaking of the law, sins being the entire picture of missing the mark, all of those things that you do that are less than God's best for you. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Notice the tense of this. You were. You used to be. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Verse 2, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. Notice what he says in verse 3. All of us. Say that with me. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. In case you're not sure what that means, I don't want you to miss it. Doing what comes naturally. Living the way we think we were born. According to the sin nature in us, the mind controlled by the flesh is hostile to God, Romans 8. It does not submit to Him, nor can it do so. That's the state into which each one of us is born, all of us, across the board, no exceptions. Not your dear, dear sweet grandmother, not the nice old lady next door, not that American hero who, who gives his life in combat to defend freedom. No exceptions. No one gets a pass. All of us are in that natural state. All of us also lived among them at one time, doing what comes naturally. Like the rest, we were by nature, 
This is what living naturally gets us. Deserving of wrath. The better rendering in the older edition of the NIV is objects of wrath. If you have a, a, an ESV or some other translations, it likely says children of wrath, which I think is a good parallel for the picture of adoption that he gives in chapter 1. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And Paul here is saying to us, don't just understand who you are apart from Christ, but understand who you are in Christ. It is by grace You have been saved, not because you did good stuff, not because you're holier than someone else, not because you're more spiritual, therefore you get it and other people don't. None of us get it until God takes the scales off our eyes as he did with Paul so that we can see what our hard hearts are unwilling and unable to see. Every single person who comes to Christ gets Christ. But don't have any mistake in your mind, every single person who comes to Christ is, by definition, a miracle. Because God is going outside of the natural, outside of everything that is established as a rule in place, and saying, this one is mine. This one who cannot see, now can see. This one who cannot walk is too lame spiritually to be able to walk the needed righteous life. Now, by my spirit, can walk. Every salvation is a miracle. When we're talking about our salvation, we're talking about a testimony of deliverance. A testimony of of deliverance we have been brought from death to life notice what he says in Ephesians 2 verse 6 and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus for it is by grace You have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It is a powerful thing to be delivered We have been brought from death to life. We have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. If you are in Christ, if you have come to a place where you recognize, man, I'm dead. I'm dead in my sins. I got no hope. There's only Jesus. And I'm not good enough. And I'm not going to be good enough. If it's up to me to be good enough, I might as well go to hell now because that's where I end up. But God, 
and I'm going to trust Jesus as my parachute. It's only him that saves me. This plane's going down, baby, and it's only Jesus. If he doesn't save me, I cannot be saved. When I come to that place where I understand who I am and who he is and his offer of mercy and grace to me, and I fall on my face before him, something changes. Something changes in me. The way God puts it in the Old Testament is that he takes the heart of stone and he replaces it with a heart of flesh so that we can respond to him. In the New Testament, we see, as Paul says in in chapter 1 here, that the Holy Spirit now lives in us. In fact, let's look at what he says in Ephesians chapter 1. Go back to verse 11. I'd like to read the whole thing, but you'd like to get done today, so I will discipline myself. Verse 11, In Him, in Christ, we were also chosen, having been predestined, it says here, or or being chosen in advance according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will in order that we... He's speaking of the Jews and the apostles who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of His glory. And you also, speaking to the Gentile believers there in Ephesus, were were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, notice this, this is true of every believer, you were marked in Him with a seal. A guarantee, if you will, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are, Christ, who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. We have been delivered and we have been sealed with God's Holy Spirit inside of us. He has changed us. So now, what I could not desire in my flesh, I might desire a lot of noble things in my flesh, but what I cannot desire truly is God's will because my sinful heart doesn't submit to God. But the regenerate believer who has been changed, who has received this new heart in Christ, who has been united with Christ and marked by the Holy Spirit as a guarantee that God will finish what He started, that person now desires in the deepest inner places, no matter how much I might blow it, now I desire God's will. My will joyfully conforms with God's will, and I am happiest when I am doing what God has called me to do. And I am desperately miserable, probably more so than I have ever been when I am outside of God's will. The most miserable person in the world, many say, is the carnal Christian because you got too much Jesus to enjoy the sin and too much sin to enjoy fellowship with Jesus. It's a bad place to be. As we're talking about this deliverance, understand that that what happens internally, there's an inward change, and that inward change 
is a testimony to us, a testimony within. I have the Spirit of God testifying in my inner person so that I know in my knower that what God said is true, and I will hold to that. That's the internal testimony. Now we shift from the new identity to the front door. Why the front door? I heard someone recently describe baptism as the front door to the church. This is the entrance point to the body of Christ. It's not our entrance point to salvation. But as you look at at the New Testament, what we see over and over again is this ordinance of baptism, which Jesus gives himself, having practiced baptism, being baptized, not for repentance, but for identification with the will of God, and prescribing, in Matthew 28, baptism as the identifier, the testimony, for all who will receive him. That baptism is how we enter into identification with the body of Christ. In baptism, you declare who you are. Salvation, you understand who you are, and it's necessary for us to grasp what it means to be saved. In baptism, we are now publicly declaring in this outward testimony the testimony that has already occurred inside where Jesus has changed who we are. He's given us a new nature, united to Him. We stand clean before God by His work. Now in baptism, we identify publicly with that work. In baptism, we declare precisely who we are. In fact, we are declaring, if you will, our independence from sin and worldliness. It's not an independence that we have won, but it has been won for us. The cost was high. Jesus paid it on the cross. Turn, if you would, to, <clears throat> excuse me, to Romans chapter 6. If you're in Ephesians, go back to the left. Romans chapter 6. Paul is is following on the heels of talking about Abraham's faith, that uh, Abraham was not uh, considered righteous because of his works and the things that he did, but because he believed God. He believed that God's promise was true and that God was faithful to do that which he had promised. And chapter 4, verse 22 says, this is why it was credited to him as righteousness, right? He goes on to say in verse 23 of chapter 4 that the words that was credited to him were not written for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. We'll get to chapter 6 in a moment, but I want you to understand when we're talking about faith, This is the connection between our faith and our justification. The righteous will live by their faith. The just will live by their faith. It's an Old Testament principle. It's not new. It was true of Abraham. It was true of all the faithful in Israel. And it is true of us today. 
But we are placing our faith now, not in a mystery yet to be revealed, but in that which has already been revealed. Messiah has come. The serpent crusher has arrived, but he came as the suffering servant. A sacrifice of atonement in my place and in yours. So when I believe that what God said about Jesus is true and that the salvation he promised in Jesus is real, then that faith is credited to me as righteousness. It is the grace that saves me. It is the faith that God looks upon and says, that replaces all of the good deeds that you thought you could do, but you can't. And we receive Christ's work on our behalf. That's the faith. In baptism, however, we declare who we are. Chapter 6, verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? He's talking about this idea that if we are saved by our faith and everything's washed away and we can't lose that salvation, once I'm saved, I'm always saved and that can't go away, should I just then, hey, let's get it on, let's party, man, because all bets are off. I got my fire insurance, I'm good. (laughs) He says in verse 2, by no means. There's an exclamation point in my NIV. Maybe there is in your translation as well. That exclamation means, are you an idiot? Why would you say something so dumb? Because that's what we do. Our flesh looks for excuses. Let me tell you this. That exclamation is to remind us that the regenerate do not think that way. If you are in Christ, you're not looking for a pass to sin more. I hear that from people. Well, if everything is forgiven, past, present, and future, well then, can I, can I sin? Can I, can I rob a bank and still be okay? Well, yeah, you can. But are you dumb? Why would you want to? Jesus died for you. Why would you be looking for a way to get a pass to do the things that break his heart? This is what took you to hell in the first place. And he died to remove that. Why in the world would we want that? Chapter 6, verse 2, by no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. There are many baptisms in the scripture, by the way. They don't all refer to the water baptism that that symbolizes our entrance into the church. This does. But there's the baptism of fiery trials. There's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That, That term baptism, don't let it confuse you. It's used in many settings as simply the concept of immersion. That's what baptism is. That's what it means. It's the definition of it. That's why we do baptism by immersion in water. Because it literally means that, so we take it literally in the symbolism. Does that mean that other methods are invalid? Well, I'll let you wrestle with that another time. But I will tell you, if I have to choose between doing it my way and guessing, doing it the way it says literally and knowing, 
I'm going to stick with the literal. But what he's saying here is in this baptism, when we identify with Christ, we are identifying with his death in our place. In other words, I died on that cross with him by my identification with him. Because, as we read in chapter 1 of Ephesians, I've been united with Christ. God has placed me into Christ. Therefore, when he died on the cross, my baptism symbolizes that death, and I'm baptized into him. Let's continue. Verse 3, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. That's, again, the symbolism of that immersion. When we go under the water, it symbolizes, it depicts, it portrays emblematically the reality of being buried with Christ. When we come up out of the water, we are being raised to a new life. Verse 5, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we will certainly also be united with Him in a resurrection like His. For we know that our old self was crucified with Him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. That seems like a good memory verse for today. For we know that our old self was crucified with Him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. Our identity has changed, verse 7, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over Him. The death He died, He died to sin once for all. Once for all of us. But the life He lives, He lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves, reckon yourselves, think rightly about yourselves Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Not because of your good works, not because of your religion, not because you belong to real life community church, in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. Understand this. Baptism is for every believer. It's not an optional thing. Now, it doesn't save you. I want to be very clear about that. Some teach that it does. They are wrong. Baptism does not save you. You don't get baptized in order to be saved. You get baptized because you are saved. This is why we don't baptize infants and young children. They don't grasp it yet. We have brethren in other other, uh, theological strains who 
see the, the act of baptism more, uh, the, the, the Lutherans, Presbyterians, and so on, would practice infant baptism, paedo-baptism. And they would see this more as uh, equivalent to circumcision in the Old Testament. And they're partly right. It's a sign of the covenant, and that's true. But that circumcision did not make them Israel. It symbolized the covenant in faithful obedience because they were Israel. And in the same way, you could not be circumcised before you were born. I know that probably seems like an obvious thing. Now today, maybe you could do that, an in utero kind of thing. Uh, seems expensive, but, but at that time, for sure, you couldn't be circumcised until after you were born. Now that's significant. It might not seem significant to you, but it's significant because they were born into Israel, born into the nation. But you can't get into the nation of the church, into the kingdom of God, until you are born not only of water, natural birth, but born of the Spirit. When we are reborn in Christ, we are born into this new nation. We belong to His church. We belong to His body. Therefore, the sign of the covenant becomes appropriate when we become a part of the nation by spiritual birth. So it's fitting to do what is known as credo-baptism, a baptism by our confession of faith. When I have received Christ, then I declare my allegiance to Christ. I declare publicly who I am in Christ by identifying with Him in baptism and being raised to a new life in Him, identifying with His resurrection life and the Holy Spirit helping me walking forward in newness of life. Baptism is not optional. This is how we declare who we are. And it is the, the front door of the church. It's how you enter. You enter the church universal by that internal testimony of your salvation when you receive your new identity. But you enter the household through the external testimony of your baptism. If I have not already said so, when you declare who you are in baptism, this is our testimony of allegiance. This is our testimony of allegiance. In much the same way that we as U.S. citizens might speak the pledge of allegiance, I am pledging my allegiance to the flag and all that it represents. In baptism, I am pledging my allegiance to Christ and His church. And I am saying, I'm all in with Him, and I'm all in with you. I'm independent from the kingdom I used to be a part of, and I am united with my brothers in this new holy nation. Not United States, but the united people of God in Christ. A new identity, the front door. Let's talk next about the family table. 
today we will practice this family table. I have it listed here as communion for a reason. You know that I will usually refer to it as the remembrance celebration because we are remembering what Jesus did and we are celebrating what we gain from that. Many call it the Eucharist that comes from the Greek meaning thanksgiving because as we do this we give thanks for what Jesus did for us. And as we give thanks we do so as a body together. It's a family table. Therefore, the term communion is often used. We partake of one loaf. We are together in Christ. And our celebration of communion reminds us of that. That which purchased our freedom and that which unites us together. It's called the Lord's Supper because the Lord started this thing. He had this last supper before He went to the cross. In communion, you remember who you are. You remember who you are. Understand who you are, declare who you are, remember who you are. Jesus did this specifically for that reason. How do I know? Because He said... When you do this, as often as you do, whenever you partake in this, do it for the express purpose of remembering me. Remembering what this stands for. Remembering what I did for you on the cross or what I'm about to do for you on the cross at that moment. And all that that means. The reason that we celebrate holidays, 4th of July, Memorial Day, Christmas, is to take a moment to set aside to get our minds fixed on that. That's why it's so sad to me when we hyper-commercialize these holidays. And believe me, I like a barbecue as much as the next guy, more than most. Uh, I like food. And I love the pageantry of Christmas. I even like chocolate bunnies at Easter. But the sad, tragic, heinous crime of it is that we allow all of those things to take us away from the very reason we have holidays to begin with. It's not so you can get a day off from work. Sorry. Happy for you if you do. But that's not what it's about. The reason you get that day off of work, should you have that opportunity, is so that you can focus your mind on the meaning of the holiday. When we celebrate Memorial Day, we do so with all of these cookouts and so on. But this should be a somber moment. At some point during your day, you need to stop and let your heart hurt in the darkness and pain of those who laid down their lives that we might have freedom. We need to know that. Many of us in this room are veterans. We, we served in the military and we were willing to lay down our lives. Thankful we didn't have to because someone else did. Some of you have friends and comrades that you know by name who did not come back. 
Do you think that you can celebrate them by just having a lighthearted get-together? Is that enough? Or should there be a somber moment when you contemplate the pain of losing them and the heart that caused them to sacrifice themselves for others? When we celebrate holidays, there's a meaning behind it that should refocus, should recalibrate our minds. When we celebrate communion, the remembrance celebration, we must remember in order to rightly celebrate. If we just go through the motions, it's just something we do, so pop the, pop the cracker and swig juice. Woohoo! What a travesty. What an embarrassment to our souls. When we think somehow that this is gaining us points with God, we have missed the purpose. The purpose here is that we would remember who we are in Christ and the price that was paid for us to transfer from darkness to light, from death to life. Communion is not optional for the Christ follower. Jesus said, do this. Be baptized and break bread together in my name. It was the devotion of the early church in Acts 2. We see that they're committed to breaking bread together, a reference to communion. It was their regular practice to focus their attention on the eternal sacrifice made on their behalf. They declared their independence and their allegiance by publicly being baptized. Why do, we, why do we take more time to wrestle through baptism now? We don't do this spontaneous, immediate baptism as we see in, in the book of Acts. Because society has changed, and so the meaning of it gets lost. We don't have the same persecution. Now, we, I might believe in that a little bit more if we were in a, a Muslim country where your baptism might mean your head gets cut off or you lose your home, or you lose your family. Because people don't get baptized lightly when you can lose everything by identifying with Christ. Then, okay, maybe we might do it a little more quickly and readily. But in our day, in our society, it's easy. And it makes us feel good. We get baptized because it's inspirational. And we take communion because it makes us feel close. God and we think that maybe it can make us more spiritual and these are not the purposes when America chose to declare its independence it took a long long time to wrestle with what it would cost and they did it anyway your baptism isn't optional but it will cost you to be a disciple of Christ. So you need to wrestle with it. Am I really willing to be all in with Jesus the rest of my life? And the moment you know that that's true, get to the water. Let the world know who you are and to whom you belong. And every time when you are, once you have been baptized, once you have publicly declared that you are in Christ, then every time you have opportunity to gather with the people of God in the household to which you are committed, to say, we together will minister to one another 
to remind one another of who we are and the price that was paid for us, then do it. Celebrate in remembrance of Him and never forget the cost. At the family table, we have a testimony of remembrance. The new identity is a testimony of deliverance. The front door of baptism is a testimony of allegiance. The family table of communion is a testimony of remembrance. But there's one more thing. Celebrating Independence Day with fireworks is great. Hot dogs, apple pie, great. By the way, you should be having apple pie in your 4th of July celebrations. That's a side note just for free. You can email me to question me about it. So as, as we celebrate, understand that if we don't work to live out the virtues and values that we claim make us American, then the rest is a waste. It's a waste. Work out this identity as an American. There's a responsibility to that. If not, how can you possibly call yourself a patriot? In the same way, there needs to be in us a growing reflection of Christ in our new identity. Now, I initially had this down as walk, and I changed it to discipleship. I don't like it as well, but I, I, I want to convey a particular picture. There is a discipline in discipleship. Our daily walk flows out of our identity. That's why Paul in Ephesians is telling us in chapter 4, verse 1, walk worthy of the calling you've received. It's not that you're getting the calling through the walk. It's not that you become God's child by pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and being good enough. It's that He died for you. Now you live for Him. Who you are drives how you live. And as we'll look at more next week, because we are now children of light, we are no longer darkness, but we are light in the Lord, it only makes sense for us to walk as children of light. That's where we need to be. Discipleship involves a disciple, a student, who is learning to be like the master, following in his steps, mimicking what we see in the master, letting the teachings that have claimed my heart now claim my hands and feet. That is discipleship. Essentially, in discipleship, you prove who you are. Know who you are. Understand who you are. Declare who you are. Remember who you are. And prove who you are. Repent. And as John said to the Pharisees, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Let your good works demonstrate that your faith is real. Your good works don't get you there. But if you are in Christ, good works follow. Holiness is the fruit. As we saw in Ephesians 5, the fruit of the light consists in righteousness, in goodness. In Galatians 5.23, we see the fruit of the Spirit, that which comes from the Spirit within us. 
And it produces all these things against which you don't need laws. Because if you're living by the Spirit, only good things are coming. No bad things. That term prove has two meanings. One of them is to test. Test it. Do you want assurance that you're in Christ? Do you want your heart to feel a confidence that you're in Christ? The way you feel that confidence is walking it out. The more I obey Him, the more I walk in His commands, the more I respond to the Spirit, the more confident I can become that the faith that takes hold of His grace is genuine. That a new identity has changed in me. If it's merely theoretical, nothing has happened. But when I receive Christ and I receive this new identity, I'm born again, my desires change. It takes a long time to learn how to be who I already am. Just as we are still now, more than two centuries later, trying to figure out how to live up to our aspirations as America. We're still working it out. And in many ways, we're better than we were before. And then when we focus on these ways, then we let the ball drop over here and we create new ways of messing it up. You know, in Christ, we're going to still stumble, right? If, if you're a saint, if you're walking with Him, there, there are going to be times when you find new ways to blow it. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And you felt really good about yourself until Jesus got a hold of your heart. Then you realized, oh, wait. <laughs> I thought I was good, but I'm a dirtbag. And the more I look inside where nobody else sees, the more I see even my best motives are tainted with selfishness and pride. And I still wrestle with things that nobody else knows about. I'm reminded of the words to the great hymn, always echoing in my mind, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. You do this, God, because I can't. Seal it to thy courts above. He keeps us where we cannot keep ourselves. The growing reflection of Christ in us, the discipleship that proves who we are, is the testimony of obedience. The testimony of obedience. People will see Christ when we obey His commands. When we look like Daddy... When we no longer live like who we were, but instead we walk worthy, we live a life that's fitting for a child of God. That testimony makes the consistency of our testimony of remembrance meaningful and the testimony of deliverance meaningful. And it gives that, that confidence in us so that our testimony of allegiance and baptism is meaningful you know and i know lots of people who have gone under the water or were baptized when they were little who are not walking with jesus their hearts are far from him 
Maybe you're one of them today. I want to challenge you as we wrap this up to let all of the testimony that goes along with being in Christ, the deliverance from death to life, from darkness to light, the allegiance that we declare in our baptism to Christ and to His church, the remembrance of the cross and all of the meditations and and commitments that we make to Him in our finer moments. Let all of that be borne out and made harmonic, harmonious, whole in the testimony of our obedience as we walk out and work out the salvation He has put inside of us. And if that is not you today, if you're realizing, maybe you've never realized it before, that you've been in church, you've been going through the motions, you've done these things, but you haven't given Him your heart. Maybe you've never received Christ by faith. You can do that today. You don't have to jump through a bunch of hoops. You need to change who you are. And really, it's not you changing who you are. It's Him taking hold of your heart right now that even has you asking the question. It's Him taking hold of your heart that allows you to receive Him by faith. And the moment that you know you need to come to Him, you can know that you will be received. He will not turn anyone away. And He finishes what He starts. The believer's new identity in Christ involves a life of identifying with Christ initially in the internal testimony of deliverance at the outset when we enter into His church through the testimony of allegiance and baptism in an ongoing way as we remind ourselves through the testimony of remembrance and communion and as we declare through our actions that we are His in the testimony of obedience. This is a life of identifying with Christ. For we know that our old self was crucified with Him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. As this is the first Sunday of the month, now is the time for us to focus in on this remembrance celebration. We have set up at stations around the room. It looks like it's at each of our new windows so that you have access without having to run over each other. And I would invite you, if you are in Christ, if you have declared your allegiance to Him and now you want to, to remember this, you want to refocus your own mind and minister to others through this communal act in the body, then by all means... In just a moment, when I release you to to dine together, then go to one of these stations and take the elements back to your seat with you, and we'll contemplate this, and we'll take it together as communion together. Let's pray. Father, today it is fitting for us to celebrate our nation's independence. 
But that is a secondary, maybe even a tertiary issue. The primary, the primary issue in the universe, in our lives, in all of history, is your Son. That you demonstrated your love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That you loved this wretched world so much. We, your image bearers who lived in rebellion against you, you loved us so much that you gave your only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him might not perish, might not forever be separated from you and condemned as deserving of wrath, but have everlasting life. This is the primary issue. Lord, it is my prayer in this moment that all who are hearing my voice would understand this. That those who are in Christ would be shaped by it more now than ever before. And that those who have not yet come to Christ would see and receive. That they would repent and turn from their way to yours by trusting in your Son and making Him their Master. Father, help us in these moments that follow to remember and to celebrate for your glory. Amen.